Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 48 and today we have Dan Grief. Now our good friend, fellow podcaster, Daisy Brackenhall uh, from Keto Woman, she actually introduced us to, to Dan which was really you know, lovely and generous of her. So we were really excited to get Dan on because he's actually local. So when I was living and working in the UK, Dan is only down the road from where I was living and he's based in, as we'll hear, he's based in Cambridge, So, which is quite close also to Jackie as well. So he's, um, it was really lovely to have, have a local connection. Yeah, he just lives about an hour away from me. And little did I know that Dan is an entrepreneur and an owner of a, a local sort of keto food company. So we'll hear some more about that, which was, you know, really, yeah, I didn't get a chance to, um, to sample his wares when I was in the UK. But for the listeners? I haven't done yet because I've been quite a lot of the time sugar-free so, and sweetener-free. So I haven't had a chance to taste anything yet. I think, Jackie, um, you know, for the purposes of research and for the podcast, you need to prioritise this and make sure that you can sample on my behalf. <laughs> Maybe I should send you some. What do you think it will turn out like when it gets there? <laughs> oh, no, no. I think I would rather just savour the moment when I can actually return and to the UK and actually sample it for myself in your kitchen. Okay. That's a deal. That's a deal. So why don't you tell us a bit more about Dan? So Dan Grief is an entrepreneur and owner of Deliciously Guilt-Free. He is also an award-winning podcaster with his show UK Low Carb, which won an award in the Podcasting for Business Awards in 2020. He's been named a top 10 foodpreneur by Yahoo Finance for Deliciously Guilt-Free and is passionate about food, which is totally keto, healthy and full of nutrition. Dan is a husband to his wife, Basma, who is his business partner, and he has two children who are five and two years old. Great. Let's hear about Dan. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. And our guest today, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here, Louise. And thank you, Jackie, as well. And I'm so pleased to see more podcasts entering this space uh, particularly, I know you're, you're not British yourself, Louise, and at the moment you're far away from Britain, but to have that British focus is wonderful to know there's more of them coming. I've got a question, though. How did you come up with the name Fabulously Keto? 
Oh, because I just thought it, it was fabulous. I just had such an amazing transformation, I guess. Uh, and it wasn't anything particular. I didn't have any health issues. I, I probably did, but I never went to the doctor to find out because I didn't trust the doctors, so I didn't go. So maybe I was pre-diabetic, I don't know. But I just, things that I couldn't do, I just then could do. So, yeah, I just thought Great. it was fabulous. That, so. Well, I love that word because do you know the origin of the word fabulous? No. It's fabulous. It's a fable. It's unbelievable. It doesn't exist. It's not real. But it's so amazing. It's almost like a fable. It's unbelievable. And I love that word for that reason. When you hear that now, you always think about the origin of it. It's like so amazing. It's like a fable you tell your kids to say this amazing thing that's happened, but it's real. And I think that's the thing about Keto I love is that you're talking about real stories and real lives and how it's transforming people's lives. And that even though it says unbelievable that you can be not hungry, lose weight and have a great lifestyle that you love, it's it's all real. And it's actually the real way we should be eating. So I think that's a great name. And I just love that you've gone for that name. Thank you. Now, can I remind you that we're the interviewers today? <laughs> I know. I, I must admit, I wanted to just ask you that question because it was a good one. But I will promise from now on in I'll be a good guest and I will merely answer the questions that are filled to me. Um, I'm kind of used to doing podcasts in the other angle. <laughs> I was about to say, you're, you're cutting our mustard here, mate. You know, this is, this is our podcast and just wait your turn. And uh, oh, oh well, the, sorry. sorry. The right a reply. Um, yeah, so... Dear listeners, yes, um, Dan is a podcaster and um, I'm sure that we'll have ample opportunity to talk about you and your story as we take a deep dive um, into into that. And But can we at least start with our first question, which is where in the world are you? I'm currently just outside Cambridge in Britain. Um, it's, it's April, almost May, and yet it's freezing cold at the moment. So not so nice here, is it, Jackie? Um, but uh, yeah, this is where I live. So now we can get into your story. You have permission to sort of, you know, hijack the rest of the um, the rest of the podcast with your story. Permission and uh, received so- and uh, happily used. Um, okay. So, so do you want my story? Did you say from from like, from day dot? Because I can talk a lot about myself. <laughs> well, stop. But. Yeah. Start with your, you know, how you came into being low carb, low carb keto, but particularly we really want to know what was that light bulb moment and who was that one that that drew you to this to this journey? Yeah, yeah, happily. Um, so in short form, it's my wife who um, first looked into going into the lower carbohydrate eating, um, and then keto kind of came from that, and it, you know, so it's initially understanding nutrition and how it works in our bodies. Now, the story behind that was in 2015, uh, my wife, Besma was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Um, she is from an Arab family and a lot of her um, elders in the family, like her aunties, uncles are either pre-diabetic or they become type two diabetic uh, eventually like her grandmother did. Um, and so she was very aware as a doctor of how type two diabetes works and about the, the link between sugar and of course, you know, ingesting sugar and, and the impact that has. So she decided she wanted to try to avoid taking artificial insulin for as long as she could and rather try and manage gestational diabetes through diet. And so she did a lot of research. She was looking into uh, YouTube videos, et cetera. And one of them was by Sarah Hallberg. And I just watched this as well. Now, a bit of backstory for me. I've always somebody who's, um, especially since my early 20s, had an issue with weight. And I remember thinking, hang on a minute, as I'm listening to this, and I was going to do the same 
journey as her to try and support her on the way, not really thinking it's going to apply to me at all. And as I watched these videos, I thought, whoa, hang on a minute. I think I've just had a light bulb moment of understanding myself and realizing that I was always blaming myself. You know, individual responsibility is very important. However, if the rules are set up against you so you don't actually have a chance to succeed, then what chance do you have? And I realized very quickly that I was following the rule book, which works against my body. And I've not, I wouldn't say I'm a greedy person. I'm a foodie for sure. But I would be eating pastas and breads and stuff. And I suddenly had that click of, hang on a minute, this is the answer for me. So I then decided that's it. I'm not only going to go low carb for the gestational diabetes. I'm also to support her. I'm also going to do it for myself as well and give myself a real shot at this. And, and that's what I did. So the amazing thing is in terms of her pregnancy, by the end of the pregnancy, she was actually lighter, not the actual bump part, but she was actually leaner than she was at the beginning of the pregnancy. She came out of the pregnancy healthier than she was going into it. And then through breastfeeding the next year, we had a very healthy year again, doing keto and low carb. Now, that was my light bulb moment. I would say, though, that since then, there's been many, as I'm sure you can relate to, of things where you suddenly click and you go, oh, that's that's that. And the seed oils discovery and about what that does to our health and, and all these other things have happened since then. But that was the key thing that I remember clearly sitting on the sofa at home watching the Sarah Hallberg video. And it just was like, whoa, paradigm shift. This is a moment in my life which I'm going to look back on as a turning point. Is that her TED video? Was that? Yeah, the TED yeah, Talk video. Ted video. Yeah, I then met Sarah Hallberg mm-hmm. a year later, and I, I actually was like, "Well, you changed my life," and it was it was major. But I didn't. Okay, what really happened was I went, "Hi, I'm Dan. How are you?" And then said, "You know, I watched your video. It's amazing. It had a big impact." But the Hollywood version of that is. Sarah, you'll never know how much you changed my life. <laughs> so that's what didn't happen. But the reality was a little bit more geeky and not quite as confident. Yeah. So from the pregnancy onwards, uh, how did that then change the rest of the dynamic in the family? So now your parents no longer pregnant, but you're now on your low carb journey. Is your wife still sort of low carbish? Yeah. Now this is the thing I love about these stories because you know, the Hollywood Instagram version of stories is always you start from a certain point, you then have a challenge, then you at the end have a happy ending. But we all know that life doesn't work like that. You know, life is much more up and down and, and things happen to us as we go along. And so and I'm, I'm all about on my podcast as well, sharing that story, because nobody's got to the end until the end of their life, which we don't generally talk about. But, you know, you, you are somebody who's living with your body and you have to find out how you work. And I think there's been a real discovery for me. So there's several things that have happened on that journey. So the first thing was we had my daughter uh, five and a bit years ago. We then decided we're going to just carry on with this because it worked for us. I was going to the gym at the time. Things were going really well. I was doing an amazing job. So at that time, and I think mental health and and all these things tied together so, so closely. Um, And I was actually doing a job working for a social enterprise. So I was traveling to schools recruiting um, teenagers to go out to Africa and Asia and South America. Then I went to Kenya as part of that job as well. And it was going really, really well until I went to Kenya. Now, when you get to some of these communities I was working with, and I'm talking about, you know, Savo in this huge, amazing wildlife uh, safari park. Um, and there's nothing for miles and miles around apart from animals. And all our meals were provided for us. And I remember turning up and I'd been keto at that point for probably um nine months or a year uh, very very religiously and i'd lost weight i felt amazing i was working out i felt confident and everything 
you can't really in those communities suddenly say, by the way, I have a diet which is different to everyone else's. Um, obviously, I did stay keto for as long as I could. So I remember going and getting just the, the fish course and just eating that part or just eating the meat dish and eating that as well. But there's one day in particular, and bearing in mind, we're building schools and we're working really hard, um, you know, really backbreaking work. And they served the, the lunch and it was rice. And I thought, okay, this is a great thing about keto. We both know, we sorry, both, we all know that we've got this secret thing in our arsenal called intermittent fasting, which we don't mind because we don't feel hungry. That's fine. I can get through this meal. I'll just fast. I'll just drink water. Evening meal, a bean-based rice dish. Oh my word. So I've not had breakfast, I've not had lunch, and I've also been working really hard out in the sun. And I thought, okay what's the harm in one meal? Because I want to eat something. So I had that meal and then it was Christmas. That was in October. By Christmas, uh, I was thinking, I've still eaten carbs. What's happened here? Um, you know, cause I honestly think, and we can talk about addiction if you like, but I think I do have a, a certain addiction, especially to wheat and flour. So I was thinking, okay, I'm still eating carbs. What's happened? Uh, it'll be Christmas soon. So let's just get through Christmas first. Oh, but then we've got a wedding coming up in March. So <laughs> I didn't really want to miss out on that, do I? And I, th- and I actually learned that you think you've got it so right, but it's very easy to make a, a suboptimal choice and then find that you're then stuck back in the carb creep and all the rest of it. So I've had a few resets over time, and I particularly found this year very difficult because I run a business, and so that brings certain stresses and strains. And I can talk about my last year and how ridiculous that's been. But also suddenly in the winter, running a business and having all that going on, plus homeschooling a five-year-old has been really difficult. And I have struggled a little bit and I have noticed Carb Creek coming in back in. And then since kind of like March the 1st, I made a decision, that's it. And I'm really strict keto now. And I've just rejoined the gym and I want to get back to that place where I've got a really healthy life balance because I can then really enjoy keto again. So it has been a bit up and down, if I'm honest, over time consistently keto over those five years apart from these little windows where things have sometimes gone wrong and i think identifying what is your trigger or what trips you up is really important because none of us has got the final answer it's only what's right for us and how we work and getting to know yourself is i think the key thing to following a lifestyle that's gonna be healthier yeah what are your triggers all right so if I, okay, this is, this is really weird psychology, but if I, for instance, have um, something bread-based or pastry-based, which I just don't go near now, I know that my brain is almost saying, well, you've done it once, so why don't you just do it again? And I, re- and I realize that in me now that I have to now say, just, I just can't have it. A bit like an alcoholic. Uh, you know, and I take it that seriously. You know, an alcoholic doesn't just have one glass of wine and think they're fine. The next day they're, they're telling themselves to have another one. Now, what's interesting is, I don't enjoy eating bread and pastry and whatever as much as I enjoy eating steak by any means. And yet I've never had that with steak ever. I've never had this feeling of, oh, I've had a ribeye. I really crave a ribeye tomorrow, but I do with, with, with wheat and flour-based carbs. So I just can't go near those. Something like potatoes. Um, I've never been a massive spud eater, so I don't really mind avoiding those in the first place. That's fine. Um, but I do think, you know, but I don't eat them still because I think it's that mindset of you can eat this stuff. And I just think it's better to honestly say, I'm going to really enjoy this food. And that's going to be my really like, it, I'm going to make it a celebration if you like. So for instance, I notice when things can be a bit of a trigger is when my fridge is empty 
and I haven't done the shopping because I'm busy doing all these other things. And I'm more likely to make a suboptimal choice at that point, which is going to be a trigger. So I think planning ahead is good. Going to the shop, make sure you've got a full fridge of stuff you can eat, making your environment one that you're happy to be in. Um, I've got a two and a five-year-old, so making sure that their food isn't junk and rubbish is going to be tempting, that sort of thing. They're the triggers I find that I can trip over, if well, to mix my metaphors. So, um, yeah, so those things definitely can trigger me. Mm. And I think it's about making this your new normal. And whenever you come off plan for whatever reason, be that a wedding or just because you choose to, that you it's where you come back to and you just keep coming back to it. And however many times you wander off the path, you just keep coming back. And I think that's the thing for us that makes it sustainable. And for some people, so you're saying you can't um, have the wheat because that will trigger an addiction in you other people will be able to so you just you have that one thing and you maybe you can have something else like some potatoes and it it, you don't get that same response but you just okay I'm going to have that but then I come back to here and I come back to here and I think that's the difference with other diets where you're completely restricted and then that one thing just blows out and then it's almost impossible to come back to and I think that's the wonderful thing. I think you're totally right. Yeah, totally right. I think, so for instance, sugar's that for me. I have not had a sweet tooth ever. I don't eat sugar. I haven't done for years now because I you know, I just see it as toxic and bad for us. Um, but if I did, for instance, have sugar, I know that I would not fancy it again. I'm just not triggered by sugar at all. But the the wheat stuff, the bread stuff, I've definitely got a bread thing, which I mean, I was the sort of person who, you know, growing up, I would want to have a bread roll next to my meal if I could, or like a piece of bread with it and and put something in the bread to eat it. That's just how I always wanted to be. Um, my mum has been well ahead of her time and she would say she didn't have fruit in the house, for instance. She was always a very vegetables person, not a fruit person. Um, used to occasionally get strawberries and that's about it. And she'd be like, you know, you can eat your asparagus and stuff, but don't go near the fruit, it's full of sugar. She's being very, very sugar aware. So we didn't, we were never in a sugar household, never really had sweets or anything. Um, but for me, bread was my thing. And, you know, having a sandwich, I used to, I was such a pious teenager. And there's, there's a lot of stories here I could go into, but this one is relevant to this. And um, I was so pious that I used to fast during Lent. And I used to do it completely as a making money for charity. So I used to give my dinner money to the charity box for Cathod because I was raised Catholic. And I used to then fast all day. Um, but then I'd break the fast with like a big sandwich and, you know, like, just carby stuff and i'd be starving the next day fasting again i used to do that a few days a week and it was awful it was really miserable so when somebody suggested to me later fasting by doing it from a fat burning point of view it was easy and i was like i was quite worried but it was quite easy um so you know so there's there's that kind of thing that i realized yeah bread has been a big thing for me so i just have to say i don't do bread and actually i've got to be careful because even low carb breads we make in the bread machine at home even a low carb bread, I'll try some of it. And I think we've got to be careful because my brain's almost like saying, oh, we're going to have a party, are we? So there's just some things I just have to be aware that that's how I work and just say no to them. Mm. Is that the psyllium or the flax, the flax-based bread? Or yeah, are you using the it's like a, it's a, well, actually, yeah. So I use the longevity flour, which has got the gluten in it. And it's also got, I think, oat bran, I think, and a flaxseed um mm-hmm. base or i don't know the exact ingredients but it's that sort of thing yeah it is very bread like and um by yeah adding, it's very bread like yeah. yeah 
it's the it's the breadiest bread substitute that I've found, apart from obviously the other bread, which is that flax psyllium egg white base, the the Diet Doctor recipe, which is the sort of you know heavier little nuggety bread roll type thing. So, but I even think the texture of that sets me off a bit. I think mm-hmm. you know the mindset of I can have it. My brain's almost like, well, you've had it once. So what's the difference between that and real bread then? You know, and it, obviously it's different, but it's a, it's a it's a trigger. So I just have to say. I, I can have that in moderation, but then that's it. It's a treat. It's not going to become part of my daily, you know. Yeah. I. It's an interesting language that you use because obviously if you're saying that I have addictive tendencies, that sets me down this particular path. And as you rightly said, you don't give an alcoholic just one drink or you don't give a heroin addict, you know, just one shot. So that's where i suppose when we come to keto low carb when we're always looking for substitutes we look for substitutes in pasta um rice we you know and and bread i think they're the the top threes but when we can then look for substitutes that helps us ease us into our journey but we for me you know with my addictive tendencies as well I can't moderate. I cannot just have, you know, one slice. You know, I need to Mm. completely abstain. So that's been a really interesting part of my journey, um, which sounds like it resonates with with you about those sorts of triggers. I agree. Do you find, Louise, though, that I've only come to the conclusion in 2021 that it's an addiction? I didn't know that before. I actually thought, what a crazy thing to say about an addiction to bread or something because it's not one of those things that's identified but it's only because i realized certain behaviors that i could then think oh hang on a minute that's very similar to an addiction so uh you know making um plans so that carbs are going to be the the bread-based carbs going to be part of the plan um you know like make an excuse for why something must happen so that i just fell into eating that thing again and i realized I'm actually engineering my day a little bit sometimes with that in mind, or I'm setting myself up to fail here. Why am I doing this? And I'm not doing that with other foods I prefer. And I do prefer steak. So, so there's something weird going on there. that's more like an addiction than it's just about eating a a food that's not good metabolically. Yeah. So I, I was going to say, I knew that um, wheat is very addictive. Wheat is highly addictive. And I I think it was probably back in maybe 2000 and, 12 or 13 something like that maybe even earlier that i'd read um wheat belly and read about the wheat and how it's different how they grow it differently they've modified it so that the combine harvesters can cut it and that that plays havoc with our insides but it also makes it very addictive so at the point where i was my heaviest i knew i was addicted to the bread i was driving six miles a day every day, Monday to Friday, just to buy fresh bread. didn't matter that there was bread left over from the day before. I wanted the fresh bread. And I would drive um, six miles every day. I then cut it down to every other day. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would go and buy the bread. But And I knew it was addictive, and I knew that was the problem, but I just could not stop eating it. Yeah. There there is, though, this is what I think about interest about the Judeo-Christian culture that we have in the West – that daily bread is actually a spiritual thing going back. So I'm really into politics and I'm reading about uh, Robert Peel at the moment. And I read that there was a backlash at the time about the corn laws because it's actually seen as being a person's right to have bread as a God given thing. And even though you might not be as religious now, I still think there's that association with 
a bread is a major part of your nutrition each day. Either it's your breakfast or it goes with the meal in some way. And I do think it's ingrained a bit like it's interesting how, you know, you get other cultures where rice. So when I was working in Cambodia, rice was the main and in Thailand, of course, rice is like the main dish. Uh, Japan, China, rice is like a real staple of the diet and it becomes cultural. It's more than just so. So when we're talking about a suboptimal food for us, it's something that's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, which is obviously makes it harder to avoid. But culturally, it's not only accepted, it's seen as being the way to eat. So you're going against a lot of different things that are kind of countercultural. Um, and, and people will look at you like, oh, you don't eat bread. You must have a gluten thing. No, actually, I think bread's just bad for us overall. They look at you like you're mad, mm. you know. And I think that's it's good to have that discussion because it is a real poignant thing in our society in the West. And for my, my grandma used to, she would hate throwing away bread. She wouldn't, she would keep it all and then make a bread pudding out of it. Yeah. So for her to throw away bread, and of course she grew up in the war, she was in her 20s during the war, and everything was on ration. It, it becomes even more ingrained to hoard food, I think. But she it does, lived- and also cultures have that process. So in the Middle East, I used to work in Palestine, and they used to put the bread on the walls for birds and, and anyone else to eat because it's seen as going to be a complete moral uh, problem to throw bread away when it's a staple of life for animals to eat too. And I think it's, our relationship with this stuff is very interesting. I mean, you're talking about 10,000 years of human programming. doesn't mean it's good for us. And it's obviously evolutionary-wise uh, has caused a massive amount of problems. But there is a really strong link there that we all have to, I think. So that's why for me, I think it's better to say, I'm going to step away from this stuff you know and just it doesn't like me back so let's just leave it like a, it's like a bad ex but it's, <laughs> let's get back it, well it is and it, it's it's so interesting sort of obviously being here in thailand and when you sort of tell the server no rice you're like no noodles and it's just like yeah what? yeah and what on earth um, would you eat and even when you're trying to well well that that was the question I'm, I'm talking to this server one time and i'm sort of saying no no i just the plate came with like the delicious you know mugrop you know the the crispy pork and it obviously was sat on this rice and i said no just just keep the rice i just want the pork you know give me a double pork you know hold the rice give me double pork and he still had to serve it with the rice it's just yeah. you know it's, it's so it is it's just the way that they eat. yeah it is and it's you know, I, I was raised in a Catholic family, so we even had the, uh, the theology of bread and the Last Supper. I mean, it's a, it's a, a mass occurrence every single Sunday. So, you know, it, it, it's major. So I, I know, I, that's why I realise now I think it is addiction that I've then cultivated or it's become that way for me. So I have to just be aware of it. Um, yeah. So I hope that answers your question about, you know, <laughs> my sort of since then. Hmm. Yeah, it's it was interesting for me because, like Jackie, I read Wheat Belly and Grain Brain, but I think the biggest I've one I've not was, read these books. I've, I've written them oh, down. Okay. I'm going to read them because I've heard of them. I've not read them, so I definitely will. So William Davis was was Wheat Belly. Um, David Perlmutter is Grain Brain, but I think the other one that for me was about the the junkies, the the food junkies, which was Vera Tarman, and that oh, and it's literally down right now, Louise. Because I'm going to yep. read these. Brilliant. So, so, and Food that junkies. was obviously looking at what are those chemicals like 
William Davis will talk about the actual ectomorphin. So that's the 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 chemical that gets converted from the gluten in, that crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it's the same with the caseomorphin. So that's why dairy has this uh, ability to cross the blood-brain barrier and give you that high. But we know cheese is life, you know, bread is life. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's these I adore cheese. I haven't given up cheese, I must admit. But you haven't given up I, cheese, I, I, comma, yet. <laughs> well, um yeah, I mean, if I'm really ill or something, I might have to for a bit, but um, I don't know if I would. I, I know that, okay, so my degree is in archaeology, and so I was actually, something you said earlier on, Jackie, made me write a note here about the evolution of food. And and actually, dairy is a very interesting story, isn't it? So um, just to go back to another story about the wheat first, though. So one one time, my uh, lecturer came into my to the lecture theatre, and he said, um, I've got to show you something. And he handed out this dry grass stuff. And um, he lived in a medieval longhouse, and so he was actually having the thing thatched. It was a mud house, which was built, I think, the 1400s. And he was having like another layer of mud put on the outside, as you have to do with these houses, and more thatch put on top. And while he's putting the thatch on, he found some wheat from the 15th century. And so he brought it in to show us. Now, this stuff to hold was not that different to, you know, in, in kind of May to June time, uh, maybe later in the summer, you get those blades of grass with the little ears of corn or whatever on them from the grass. It was a bit bigger than that. It was hardly different to what you'd see on a like wild lawn that's been left to grow or whatever. Uh, comparing it to what we have wheat nowadays, it was completely different. And wheat nowadays is massive and it's really fat and it's really full. And he said, look at you know what wheat used to be like. He said, this species doesn't even exist anymore. It's extinct, but it's been bred throughout the agricultural revolution to now make it this, and of course, genetic, genetically modified and selected over hundreds of years to make it this really fat thing which is not actually the food that has evolved in the first place. And then when you look at other foods, and this is what I find interesting about dairy, it's actually a co-cultural evolution. It was our culture that evolved us to eat milk, or should I say to tolerate it. And everyone thinks about evolution in terms of, you know, somehow we are the, the best type of human we can be because we survived the odds. But our culture has actually introduced milk into our diets, which means we can tolerate it. That's not tolerate tolerating a product or a food isn't the same as actually thriving on it, though. And you can see why so many people in the world are lactose intolerant, because actually it's, it's a kind of against evolution in terms of what we should be having. You know, the idea that a, a mother would be feeding her young uh, milk into like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s was just not going to happen in nature. Whereas actually we have three milk eating products and it came from cheese first, milk second. We could tolerate eating cheese and baked in milk into something. And then we turned this gene off in our bodies through um, just by doing this over hundreds of years so we can tolerate dairy, but it doesn't mean that we should actually should be eating it. So, you know, food is not, and fruit is the best example. Fruit is not what it was hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. You know, it's, it's completely evolved alongside us because it's been selected through agriculture. And when you know that, then you realize that healthy thing you're eating is actually a man-made product. And it's and it's, so it's not a natural product you would have had in the Paleolithic, for instance. No, and I remember when I was young, we had peaches. Nectarine was something that came out later when I was older. And also I didn't, oh. I didn't like raspberries because they were so sour. I used to like yeah. strawberries. But now the strawberries are completely tasteless and the raspberries are quite sweet. So I can eat raspberries again. But I could eat, you know, even in my lifetime, I can see that change. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you know also, this is a funny one. 
you know that there was a different species of banana until the 60s, apparently, and it went extinct? So, you know, when you get banana flavor of something, it doesn't taste anything like banana. That's actually the flavor of this banana that went extinct under like a, a, a disease that killed them all off. And then they developed in the 60s onwards another breed of banana. But of course, bananas, when you go to, to eat plantains and stuff in, in Asia and whatnot, they're tiny little things, aren't they? The ones that we have now are huge, great yeah. sugar laden things um which are you know like having a mm. it's like having a sweet or a chocolate bar in some ways it should go hit you get yeah so when i walk out on my my soy and so they are those little sort of lady fingers sort of the really quite small no bigger than your than your thumb very tasty aren't they <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know um the only time uh, well, i only know from previously uh trying them yeah, i haven't, haven't tried them for many yeah, years i haven't tried since. i haven't tried them but i have tried to get the longer cavendish you know the regular um blue um so that's the the western the western banana so you can find them in supermarkets and and um yeah not not in the markets because the smaller the smaller ones are there but um yeah i have bought those western bananas to make banana muffins for for people here so um yeah but it's it is certainly interesting to sort of see going just to my local my local market and it is it's so fresh and green and flavor and colors so I don't actually know a lot about the food production here because obviously we have the wet market so all of the meat are is sitting on that big mound of ice um right yes well I think because of the turnover, so I don't know about food safety and standards. There are a couple of stalls that do have refrigeration, but mainly uh, they they do actually have all the fish and chicken, pork on the on the big mounds of mounds of ice. But it is a quick turnover. Ties don't cook at home. It's cooking, cooking, you know, we don't cooking. But why would you? That, that's quite common. A lot of Asia, like India yeah, like that. I, I know they do a lot of cooking too, but the street food culture is absolutely. really big, isn't it? Cheap. Um, it seems to be much more Protestant maybe to like, you know, have home base, not going out. I don't know. But it seems to be a Western is a bit different to, to that, isn't it? But I think it's cheaper as well because maybe if I do the, the math just quickly for a little one of those baggies, the, I call them baggies, the little sort of serves of of food is maybe i don't know 50p maybe if i just do wow. the math quickly so the economy of scale of cooking there then huge. makes it worthwhile huge absolutely so yeah. i mean we it's the same size as the uk it's 65 million people here but in the city i don't think it's as big as big as um say london but there is certainly you know millions and millions of people here so you know and you'll find the street carts tucked under the bridges in the walkways around around the big um, corporate offices under the railway bridges those sorts of things because it is about scalability so um i do remember those the only thing about the food i remember in bangkok was um was they had things like um what was it in Cambodia was actually worse to be fair They'd have things like scorpions, and I remember this pig head soup, just these pig heads around a bowl, and I was like, oh, that's a bit much for even me, I think. <laughs> so you wink back at me. Well, the insects apparently is a eastern, so the eastern province where it's quite dry, and so a lot right. of those sorts of protein sources, so that's the bugs and the critters and the crickets and all those sorts of things, um, has come from the eastern. So 
only a couple of like four four kilometers well that's what that's about you know two three miles down the down the streets is a really big slum area so backs onto a market so went through wandered through this maze of of um, food markets and they're frogs you know, frogs on a stick, yeah. you know, barbecued frogs on a stick. So I wasn't quite adventurous. Well, that. Cambodia, we had a lot of that. I mean, one time I've got a bit of a thing about frogs is in I don't really like them very much. And um, and the, the, the building we were in was in the middle of a paddy field and it's a dry season. And they had big ponds, which they'd like dug out to try to save some water for, for the dry season to then have another harvest. But it didn't work because, you know, it's so hot uh, and the water evaporated. But it meant that all these frogs were in these pools. And as the water was going down, they'd be everywhere. And at nighttime, they'd be across the floor. You'd walk and a carpet of frogs would be moving. It was that many of them. So they just saw this as the greatest thing ever because this is dinner. Um, and so they had, you know, one night we had deep fried frog uh the next night we had the toads and i was like you seriously you sure you can eat those and and you know the culture in cambodia of course because their tragedy in the 70s and the khmer rouge was is survival and you know you just eat anything um so i certainly had some interesting things and i would say even though i've done my slightly snooty you know i don't want to have a pig's head soup or whatever i find it interesting how people will eat prawns and yet they won't eat like an insect on the land which is incredibly similar looking so it's it's like it's a mindset mm-hmm. isn't it really yeah but unless you're australian and you eat the actual animals on your coat of arms so having kangaroo and emu so um yeah we will well there you go i don't have a coat of arms so oh i see the nation one right yeah we can't eat a unicorn can we jackie (laughs) but we should uh try and find one sometime when you find it give me a shout okay i'm on that yeah so um going back to the wheat and how things have changed over all this time you did a little experiment about food and how that's how our current food choices have been so recent. So you did it across a lot of people did it around time, don't they? They say for, you know, 23 hours, we've been eating a certain way and only in the last hour have we been eating as we eat now. You did it slightly differently, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I find the past absolutely fascinating. And I also find the other thing I find fascinating is how as people, and I mean, include myself and everyone in this, we have very, very little sense of time. So, you know, when you go up to one, two, three, four, five years, we can understand that, of course, because we've experienced it. If I said to you a thousand years or 10,000 years, I think most people would have a hard time really distinguishing just how much has happened in that time. And when you go to millions of years, it becomes almost nigh and impossible. And what I find really incredible about evolution is that when we were, because a lot of my degree was actually looking at uh, hominid skulls and about what they would eat, which I used to do all the time. I mean, through models, we never actually have an original to look at. That would be incredible. Um, but we'd actually have the models and we'd actually look at the, the different muscles. And it was clear to me that Homo habilis or one of those other hominids had a ridge on its, at its top of its skull. And the idea was the big muscles would be there to make that jaw chew and chew and chew and chew and chew. And what you can see is the jaw gets smaller, the mandible gets further back, and the jaw is clearly not a grazing jaw anymore. It's just not. And you're just looking at the bone evidence, you can see that. Now, what I find incredible is we can't really exactly say what people were eating for two or three million years because there are certain tests, et cetera, that people try to work out from bone samples, what they may have had in their diet, but it's going to vary massively. Cause if you existed 2 million years ago in, in, you know, for instance, um, 
somewhere a bit like Thailand or in North America or in Africa, you're going to have very different diets, aren't you? Well, especially as Homo erectus went around the world, they went to different regions. We're going to have very different diets, but we do know what they didn't have. And I think that's the important thing. And I thought it'd be good to try to get a sense of time and scale for when that change happened. Now, the interesting thing is, here in Cambridge, for instance, we would have been under a sheet of ice 10,000 years ago. It's only at the end of that ice age that things started to change. If you look at the River Thames, that's actually the edge of the ice sheet. So that's where the ice sheet pushed up to. And then it, when it retreated, that was the river that was run along the ice sheet. So the Thames used to be in Norfolk, then Cambridgeshire, was eventually pushed down to where it is and it stopped there. That's the end of the ice sheet you're looking at. So I find that anything above the River Thames onwards would have been underneath ice. From that period onwards, and this is what I found interesting as a history teacher, the, the history books for kids always say the same story, which I would actually reclassify really as propaganda, that actually humans at that point took off because of farming. They're able to have civilization and everything got better and better and better. And I actually looked at the evidence to my degree and I was like, this isn't true. The life expectancy goes down. The brain size goes down. The height of humans goes down. There's some actual evidence that that's not the case. But I think the propaganda is somehow things get better. And then, of course, we see the change in things like tooth decay. We see things like, you know, illnesses that weren't killing us before start happening from communal living, but also the diets we're eating. So we then, of course, have grains, we have farming coming in and our health completely changes from that point onwards. And then we see ourselves in a mess. But we look back from today and we assume it's always been that way. And so what I did was a little bit of a changing years into miles. And I decided to work out between Louise and me right now, this moment, what does that picture look like in terms of distance? And so in terms of humans not having that modern farming agricultural um, diet, that would get you all the way from Bangkok to Stansted Airport. In fact, it's a little bit further than Stansted Airport, but I just chose somewhere a bit more relatable to people. Yeah. So is this where yeah. you are roughly, Jackie, now? Yeah. So basically all the way from Louise to Jackie is pretty much us. Well, not pretty much. It's us not eating grains. It's us not farming. It's us not uh, having dairy. It's us not having uh, sort of processed or carbohydrate in any great volume. Now, from Jackie to me, which is only like, what, actually, 20 miles or so? Actually, not we're very about far away at all. Stansted, so that's probably about halfway between you and me. So, yeah. From yeah. So, yeah, it's so about halfway between the two of us. Uh, and actually, it's slightly further than Stansted towards me, actually. I'll just use Stansted as a, as a point. It's actually in the middle of a field you know, on the way <laughs> up the M11. But it's, it's actually not that far at all. It's a very small distance to travel. But because of our ideas of culture, I mean, we think Jesus's time 2000 years ago was forever. It wasn't. It was just like the blink of an eye in terms of time and history. And yet we kind of have that feeling that that's the way we've always been. But actually, there's been a very recent change and it's affected our cultures that we live in. So, of course, we have this sensation that this is the way it's always been. But really, humans have not been eating that way. And so I'm more convinced all the time that actually keto and going low carbohydrates and it's a spectrum of what people decide to do. Is actually the human diet, as Dr. Ken Berry says, and actually we are now going against that. Now, the evidence I have also, if you look at a, a fat cat, for instance, I guarantee you're never going to find a fat cat who doesn't belong to somebody and doesn't have an owner. And you would never say that fat cat is a lazy cat and that's why it's fat. If it just walked more and did more exercise, that cat would be healthier. We know for a fact that that cat is fat because the owner's feeding it the wrong food. We just know that. We all know that. And your listeners right now will be like thinking of their own local neighborhood fat cat who gets the, uh, you know, the treats. So why is it with human beings that we then assume that it's not, there's nothing to do with our diet. 
It's just a personal responsibility because we don't go to the gym enough. And I find that really odd how we separate ourselves from the animal kingdom, realizing that every species on the planet has evolved to eat a certain way. They didn't choose it. It's just the way that evolution just threw the dice. It's just how it happened. You know, if a whale started, for instance, eating, I don't know, sea grass, it might be in trouble. It has to eat krill. If a cow stopped eating grass and started trying to eat mangoes, it'd be in trouble. You know, this is just the way that evolution's worked things out. There's no rhyme or reason. It just is. And we are using our brains to somehow think that we should be eating differently to how we've eaten all this time. Like, don't you find it interesting that in times of all that, we've had no seed oils until the last like, you know, like mile from where I am right now. We've had, yeah, exactly. It's nothing, is it? Probably less than a mile then. It's probably like, you know, 50 meters away from me right now from all that journey from where Louise is. We've not had grains or anything since Stansted Airport. And yet we're being told the things we've introduced into our diet in the most recent end of that journey are the things that we should be eating more of and getting rid of the things we've eaten for 2 million years. Now that's all, that's just crazy. And in the the 1900s, heart attacks hadn't, they didn't know about heart attacks. It wasn't a thing. And it's only since the introduction of particularly the seed oils that we start to see heart attacks going up. So... Why? Why would we? Why would we push those? I don't. I don't get it. It is bizarre. The, the only thing I know is from like teaching medicine through time to like you know high school kids. And the thing that always struck me was that the people at the time, the contemporaries, always believed they've got it right, and the change makers, they're the crazy guys who get ignored. So Semmelweis, you know, he was uh, freakily. Uh, well, he's mocked because he's trying to clean his hands, not frequently, he's trying to clean his hands and, and maintain sanitary uh, levels because he realized that women were dying from infection. That's why they were dying when they were pregnant and going to childbirth and dying after the pregnancy, after the birth. And yet he went into an asylum in the end because his treatment is completely crazy for what he's saying. And yet then people look back and eventually and go, oh, yeah, he had the right answer. But it always happens in hindsight. Um, you know, for thousands of years, Galen's theory of the four humors was so prevalent that people really believed that they would have, you know, melancholy, so from black humor, uh, bile, or, um, you know, all these different things that affect their humors and their bodies. And even now we still talk in that way about a balanced diet. Balance is everything. Cause that's the, that's a kind of an ancient Greek and Roman idea, but we still have that idea in some way. And it took people getting killed in the middle ages saying it is wrong uh, and being executed for saying it's wrong. Cause we, we sometimes as a, as a human species hold onto a paradigm. We just won't let go of it. And so I just think there's something about being okay with saying, maybe we haven't got all the answers, we can question this. So the next thing you need to think is, well, why are people introducing new things or accepting new things, like you said about the seed oils? And I think there's another element to this, and that's vested interest. There's a lot of money behind this. And suddenly it's not a case of just saying the paradigm's wrong, because in the Middle Ages about the church would then be seen as being wrong. Nowadays, it's the money is involved, and the money is saying this is where we make our cash. Who are mm-hmm. you to take that away from us? Uh, I'm sure that's what it is. And and we say to people, instead of looking on the front of the packet, look on the back of the packet. Look at the nutritional value on the back of that food rather than it's heart healthy or keto friendly or any of those things that are just yeah. propaganda. So look on the back. See what you're really eating. Yeah. They're there to sell it to you. 
I think actually knowing what your food is is really important, isn't it? And, um, you know, I, I, I always make this distinction, and I, know, I do this in politics because I get really angry when people say, what's the point in getting involved? It's just thing, you know, politicians will always lie and cheat, whatever. And I said, well, actually, if you change your mindset to you're a citizen, not a consumer, and I think that's the same with the food industry too, you're a citizen in this, you're not just a consumer of. So you must step up and educate yourself and become well aware of what's going on. And in terms of politics, have your say, get involved in the process. In terms of the food industry, just become aware of it and know what you're feeding yourself and your families. If you did that, then the market would change eventually. Yeah. But how did then do you reconcile these belief systems? Because if we have, you're saying about the food politics here, so this is obviously around food production, the supply chain, those vested interests. And on the one side, again, I'm talking about polarities here, we have the vegans, so vegan as in vegan interests, which, you know, again, has a belief system for welfare, for animal welfare. But yeah, we have, say, on the on the other spectrum, say, you know, the the people that choose to eat meat. So I'm not saying strictly carnivore, but, you know, those that, you know, the omnivores. How do we reconcile who's right? You know, this is, I know this is a bit of a loaded question to you, but, you know, where is the truth? So you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Where well, you okay. can pick up where my truth is more right than your truth young man you know i've got the animals you know vested interest at heart and how can you do that kind of farming on the other side we know the other arguments about you know regenerative um cropping and farming and we know about you know gmos and you know cows don't just fart they actually put a lot back into the into nature so whose truth is more right Well, okay, I, I think truth will out in the end as long as it's through education. Education is key. And that's why I love what you're doing because yeah, a podcast, and I run UK Low Carb and other podcasts, it's all about trying to get this message out there. And the more we do that, the better, I think. But I'm just going to turn it completely on its head for a moment and step outside of food and nutrition and talk about another issue that relates to that point. So let's go back to the um, 1890s to the 1910s. Let's look at the suffragette movement. Let's look at what, like rights for women. There's a belief system, wasn't there, that certain people believe that women should not have the vote because they weren't property owners. So if they're not property owners, they don't have a stake in society. This isn't my view. This is the view of like conservative thinkers at the time, which is the majority of the case. They don't have property. They don't have rights or a stake in society. So because they're not really a shareholder in the country through property, then they shouldn't have the vote. There's also misogyny. There's also this, you know, patronizing view and patronizing, you know, from from father of, of the way that women are. Now, you could say that's a belief system. How did you overcome that? Well, it didn't happen from the top. There was no politician who were all men at the time saying, I think one day we should give votes to women because actually it seems like the fair thing to do. What had to happen was the other way around. And if you notice, change that happens on this scale always is from the grassroots up because it's people saying either they understand more than they did previously or they've had enough and they're not going to tolerate it anymore. And then what happens is you get a groundswell movement. That groundswell movement actually then, and this is what I, I, I this is what I'm most passionate about actually, and I and I see you as being part of this too. We are building a groundswell movement for change now, a grassroots movement where people are becoming more informed day by day, and that comes from different places. And I will come back to your point, but I just want to make this point first. It might be that they've got metabolic health symptoms of obesity, metabolic health symptoms of type two diabetes. They might have other health complications or cancer, whatever it might be. 
that makes them realize that enough's enough, something going wrong here. And then they start looking into it. Now, 10 years ago, where would you have gone to get this information? The library, maybe, or some crummy website that was out there. But there's now information everywhere. We're sharing this information. And that truth is getting out quicker than before. Now, if we become more educated as people, if we pull together and have campaigns as, 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 as a collective, that's where the free market changes. That's where the politics changes. The civil rights movement in the States was the same. It had to be a grassroots movement to make Lyndon Johnson move in Washington. It didn't happen because people from Washington came down and said to Selma, went to Selma and said, by the way, guys, I think you should have better rights. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. It has to come from the grassroots up. Now, ultimately, time will tell. And actually, I'm I'm actually completely fine with saying that I could be wrong. I think that's actually quite healthy. And I think more people in society should say they should be, they could be wrong because it means you question and you keep questioning everything. And the more we learn, the, the less of a religion this is, and the more of a an actual um educational journey we're on, where we're actually looking at real science and, and the data as it comes out, the, the better we'll be to get to that final answer, which I at the moment think is keto and low carb i'm convinced of that actually but i'm always up for questioning and and for learning more as more data comes out um and i think that's how you win so and and it is happening happening rapidly at the moment now just about the vegan um i'd say tribe if you like my experience of people who are vegan are it's actually a different argument that we're having which with quite often which i think is the problem so with some vegans, they talk about environmental issues, which I do care about a lot. And I'm very considerate of the environment and I want to make sure the environment's protected. So there's that element. There's also the element of veganism of animal cruelty, which of course I care about that very much as well. But to say veganism is healthy because it's vegan, I think is a really baseless argument. There's nothing there. And actually you could do a keto diet as a vegan. I think it'd be really quite hard, but you could try and follow a vegan keto diet and, and you would be healthier if you're following western vegan diet because veganism itself is not a of course it's restrictive what you're eating but it's not primarily necessarily based on health for the person eating it i'm actually part of vegan groups on facebook and i know a lot of vegans who are buying these dinosaur shaped um things you put in the oven they're processed food that apparently has been released the last week or two in one of the supermarkets that's a vegan potato based product for kids which they're all going crazy over not all a lot of them are going crazy over now, just because that's vegan doesn't mean it's healthy. Whereas we're coming from the point of view of what's the truth here behind our health and what's the food that we should be eating because we know it's going to be the best for making, uh, you know, healthy tissue in our body and regenerating ourselves and autophagy and the rest of it. So I think that truth will come out through education eventually and engaging the conversation, not just being a tribe and saying, you're wrong, I'm right. But actually, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the data. Let's actually go to what the scientists are saying right now and question it, because that's how we're going to find the truth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the difference, because I think if you've got a vegan person who's eating whole food, there isn't much difference between them and them and me eating real whole food they're going to be healthy yeah it's just it's just a protein that's harder to get but there are ways and you know i've had uh, somebody who came on my podcast as a vegan doing keto and i was like well good on you you know i'd rather have that honest conversation about what nutrition is than the morality of food because because it's like well yeah we can make 
let's let's talk about the, the nutrition and what makes us work as humans first, and then let's talk about how to make it better. You know, like for instance, the the, the combustion engine was a massive leap forward in terms of human development, what it gave to us, but it also gave us a massive externality of the fact of pollution and clogged up streets and all these other things. So yes, the engine was good, but now let's make it better for society. Yes, the keto diet is what we should be having. Now let's make it have less of an impact on the environment or whatever it might be. You you improve. You don't just say let's chuck out because of my belief system this and then find out you've got cancer and diabetes and all these other problems you know let's be honest about the step at a time what is it humans need to eat now how can we do that most sustainable best way for the planet that would be a better conversation to have than you're wrong and i'm right which is what happens in tribes all the time and i'm in politics i you know i'm a member of the labor party and we have tribal warfare in politics all the time and it doesn't get you anywhere it's just a case of alienating the other side and saying why they're they're awful people and why you're wonderful well what's the point in that and you know, and I just think that conversation is so important. But I think when you layer it with that morality, I think that's where the judgment and the the as you said, the focus of the argument or you know the conversation shifts because you're value laden. It's value judgments that are prescribed to you're wrong, I'm right, I'm holier than thou. So that's yeah. where and when that you have power that, you differential. No, you can't, can't sit down from that position because you, if you, if you're convinced you're always right, what's the point? Like this is why I love uh, Dr. David Unwin so much. He's somebody who was, he wasn't a young doctor when he made his discoveries with that patient coming in. He was actually somebody who is actually in a towards the end of his career in terms of you know early retirement, and he's not an old man by any means, but he, you know, he had had a long career by that point of 20, 30 years. And then he had the humility to step back and say, whoa, I'm, I've got the wrong paradigm. What is that? And he actually had the humility to investigate. And now a big respect to that because economics are a big part of humanity. And unfortunately, people set themselves up as the expert in a certain topic, which means they can then never question that and undermine themselves. Now, I'm here in Cambridge and I'm not going to get into particular stories, but I've got a link to the university and I know these sorts of things happen all the time. You know, people will have a certain project they've been working on 10 years. How do you get to the end of it and say, this project's actually a load of rubbish, it's not real? You've got to keep going because it's like your life's work. You know, there's our ego tied up in it. And I think we'd be healthier and better to have an honest conversation mm. and not let the egos get in the way. But then that's changing humanity. And, I, I, you know, there's only so much we can achieve in one podcast, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the in the final final minutes. Oh I mean, no way! You can't producer. be serious. You're in the fun. You're in the fight. You're I'm just a food warming producer. up. You've gone across. You've 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 crossed to the dark side. So, you know, I've crossed to the dark side. That's, that's a relic. Somebody who's yes. going through sunset and whose image is getting darker as we speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> just got to turn the light on. <laughs> so, do we talk about delicious guilt free? Did you mean? Yeah. So yeah, I I think it's a great way for people to transition from from where they are on their western diet into a healthier lower carb way so yeah it's yeah you know what it's it's completely uh, this is why i see everything like this it's completely like the choice of the person and so when when one of the things we realized was we wanted to make alternate things now like i said i don't personally have an issue with sugar but i do like something sweet occasionally and so that's where delicious guilt free comes in, really. So we have people who have gestational diabetes who like to have a brownie, a blondie, a cake, which we make. Um, or people with type two diabetes come to us because they've, you know, they've been told effectively nothing sweet for that the whole of their lives. And 
then they can have something which I know I would feed my own family because it's only ingredients that I'm happy with. Um, or you get people who are doing keto, low carb, who want to have something now and again. And again, it's it's fine. So there's different markets out there. And, and it's kind of, you know, to have a choice is good. But what I think is interesting, I don't try to make it a keto product, a low carb product, although it is, it's also a gluten free product. But rather, I want people who eat sugar now to realize you don't have to have sugar in your diet. And I think that is major for me. So one of the things, if I could look back on my life and think I've achieved anything of any value and significance, apart from being a father and a husband, it would be the fact that I actually took on sugar and the perception of sugar in people's minds. Because, okay, we can talk about sweetness and what is a sweetener and what's good and what's not. But in terms of that sugar kick that people are on, uh, enslaved to day in, day out, I think that's really cruel. And if you can help people transition away from that in some way, which is what my product's there for, then I think that is doing a good thing overall. And maybe one day we'll move away from sugar and realize how bad it is because I read a really good tweet yesterday. Somebody said, um, you know, you eat, for instance, uh, an ice cream, a load of sweets, nobody says a word. You have six eggs and suddenly everyone's a cardiologist. And, you know, and I think that's true. I think sugar is seen as so benign in our society. And actual fact, it would be good now to move away from that. And, and I think that's where my product's there to help. So we're now being stocked in um, some garden centers as well as being an online company for people to buy directly. Um, and yeah, we're going to be taking on some of the big sugar brands as a sugar-free alternative, which, which I think could do a massive impact to the way people eat in this country. Yeah, it's great. I think having these things, for, particularly for people transitioning, once, once you've moved away, you don't need them so often. But still, we still like to have a treat, don't we? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is if you want to have a birthday cake, then you can have a birthday cake. Or if you want to have, you know, but you just have the sugar-free. Now, obviously, that wouldn't work for me. There's a, there's other low-carb companies do low-carb bread. I don't go near them personally. That's not my thing because I can't do that. And equally, there might be people with sugar addiction shouldn't come towards us. And I completely think that's fair enough as well. But there's a big market out there, I think, who, who are ready to kind of see what the danger of sugar is and move on from it. And that's, that's what we're here to help with. Um, so, yeah, it's been... It's been a crazy year. This week, a year ago, I was cooking all this in my kitchen at home. Um, and then it's grown 20 times. And now I have uh, seven staff and a commercial premises. So in a year, it's changed my whole life. And and that is quite incredible because, you know, I was actually thinking when lockdown started a year ago, is this the end of all this? You know, I was effectively teaching by day, tutoring politics by night, standing the general election 2019 as well. Um, and also doing baking at night until two, three in the morning and then posting out. Cause I really believe this. I think it's going it, to, it, yeah, I think it really could change the world. Um, and so, uh, and then a year ago, I thought lockdown's happening. What else can I manage? And yet life changed completely in that time. So we moved to a cafe, a closed cafe in Cambridgeshire thinking, well, they need the rent cause they're shut down. And we need the space. And then we couldn't move back home after that. So we moved to a closed soft play until September and then moved to the commercial kitchen. I then told somebody about my story in a Facebook group, didn't realize that they were an agent for Yahoo. And so the Yahoo named me a top 10 foodpreneur of 2020 um, because of my story, just the way it all happened. Um, and then here we are a year later in this commercial premises. So it's been one heck of a year, really. Um, and I think my podcast, UK Low Carb, is part of that because I suppose, you know, that's been going for a year too. And in that time, people have then got to know a bit about me and, and you know, learn about the brand. I suppose that's part of it too. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else that you can't do? It sounds like, you know, podcaster, food printer, 
politician. Oh my word! I, well, teacher. failure at a lot yeah. of those. I've never been voted elected anywhere, Louise. But um, yeah, I'm terrible at writing and generally reading, and I'm dyslexic, so that's certainly not my area of strength. And so, what I've kind of learned is. Um, well, I turned 40 this year and I think I kind of know myself pretty well now to know what I'm all, what my weaknesses are. And this is what I'm learning at the moment is to employ in my business for my weaknesses because I'm not a natural organiser. I'm not a natural um, tidy person, a bit chaotic, I'm a bit all over the place. And I've realised that actually that's okay and I can improve on those things, but I can also recognise my weaknesses and get other people to then compliment them. And I think that's important, isn't it? Because we can't do everything. Yeah. You'd be familiar with those team roles, right? So you have um, those Belbine, Belbine team roles. You know, you've got your got your advocates and you've got your finishers and you've got your conceptual people. So there's all these people that do that. And that's really what you've built. You know, you've built these people around you to, you know, you provide or you set them the mission and vision because you're a big picture guy. So to, to reverse, you know, or to tra- to help people transition to a to a healthy lifestyle. So, yeah, you, you build that. I think I would, so. I think so. Cha- I would change the narrative, though. Nothing is a weakness. It's just obviously you haven't practised it. You know, it sounds like you need more practice. I'm, I'm a strength-based girl, so I work from a strength base. So you bring other strengths, but it seems to be that you need to strengthen these areas of, you know, time management, organisation and that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I, I disagree. I think outsource that. Yeah, that's what I'm do. thinking. Give it to someone yeah. else to do. And actually, this is what I find so, interesting. When you when you get in your own groove, you're really happy and you think, oh, this is my thing. And then the jobs you don't want to do, you find other people, that's their groove, which I find really interesting. So I saw somebody early today who's um, doing some partnership stuff with us. And I said, you're really different to me, but you enjoy that. Like that to me is a punishment, what you're doing, because I don't know why anyone would like to do calendar management or anything like that. And they were like, I quite enjoy it. And I'm like, wow, that's a good relationship then. Because, you know, you can do the bits I don't like. And equally, public speaking is not their thing. They would hate that. So I kind of think, yeah, it's it's interesting how we, well, okay, I don't want to get too big at the end of a podcast here because we've got limited time. But this is the human way. You know, humans are sociable um collective of group working people now we do like we have more extrovert more introvert people we do have a need to be by ourselves however i think we complement each other um Mm. and we we work together in tribes to really achieve something and i think collaboration is at the very heart of all that um so yeah we do complement each other with our skills that's why the human race is so successful in some ways that's why Jackie and I are successful yeah. because I'm the plucky sidekick, the comic relief, and she's the she's the, the long-headed <laughs> the larrikin, and you're I'm the, the larrikin. But you're also the organised one, and you're the planner, and I'm I'm like Dan. Let's outsource it, Jackie. Big, yeah, big picture. Don't want to do the nitty gritty stuff. I hate so the after this, Louise, it's not possible. Really can you just organise us to have a meeting, and then can you also organise that we're going to go to the gym later, and that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> all the look that wasn't a good look. No, I, I have it. I have it colour coded. It's all colour coded for you. Oh, oh my god! Oh, so, there you go. We can get you help. It's okay. That to me is just like, <laughs> what on earth? Why would you do that? Um, yeah, but you know what? I think that's true. I think. You know, you, you need to realize what you're good at and actually you can excel and enjoy that. And then, and it's okay to, to realize the stuff that you need to work on because it's not a strength. See, Louise, I've come a long way already. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think oh, it, it was only because when you, when weakness to me is 
it's very value judged that sort of stuff. And I, I you yeah, know, it's negative, I, I understand it? what you're saying. Like I understand that, but when you're a teacher, I'm a teacher. So when I say to students, that's a weakness. That's not a weakness. You haven't obviously. It sounds like you need to, you know, practice that. Whatever you know, it's you need to strengthen the the way that you have communicated this. You need to strengthen with more clarity about this sort of stuff. I mean, strength based is obviously a, you know it's a philosophy of you know practice care. So um, yeah, and I really want to play to the strengths. You know that sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. Play, play to your, strengths. You are, you're on, playing to your strengths. Work mm. on the things you need to develop. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you went to a gym and you said, "Oh, I'm really weak," they would say, "Well, no, you just need to train those muscles." That's all. So I think it is. Yeah, you're right. I like that. <laughs> I've got a lot of muscles that need to be trained. Let's just say that. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yes. I'm in muscle muscle deficit. So um, yeah, we. I just want to say, by the way, anyway. I didn't really know what we're going to be discussing today, but I've really enjoyed that chat. I hope you did too. Um, but I didn't know we went to different avenues, and I think that's really exciting. So. Yeah, thanks for being so interesting to to talk with. Great. Yeah, that's great. So before we finish up, can you tell people, we've got some questions afterwards that we're going to ask you, but can you tell people how they can find you, how they can find your lovely cakes? Yeah, so we're Deliciously Guilt Free and the website is deliciouslyguiltfree.com. You can go on our Facebook page, Deliciously Guilt Free, or the Instagram, which is the same name. Uh, And then UK Car, which has been going just over a year. And um, that's on all kind of big platform apps and whatnot, Spotify and Apple, the same ones that you're on. Um, but also got a Facebook group if you want to be part of that conversation, UK Low Carb. And it's really there to, you know, talk about questions you might have for guests or to come on the show yourself and share your stories and whatever you want to do, really. So um, and then email wise, uh, dan at uklowcarb.com if you want to email me. And I'll try and get back to you, but, you know, I'm a little bit disorganized, so I'll try and do it whenever I can. But you're going to have somebody to do that for you. Uh, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I need. Um, and then I will get back to you a lot quicker. Or they will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we like to close off the podcast with giving the listeners three top tips. Yep. Uh, first tip is uh, eat real food. I think that's really important. So be aware of what you're putting in your body. Is it nutritious? Is it food? Or is it just a fake piece of rubbish that the uh, food industry is made to taste like food? I think that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is don't fear salt. Um, That was a big one for me. And I actually realize now more and more, especially when fasting, and I know, Jackie, you're real big fast recently, that salt's key to to getting through that. But also, if you're going to keto for the first time or you're, you know, feeling a bit under the weather, it might be you're lacking salt. That's the last. That's the second the third one has been the most interesting revelation that I've, I've done this year. Oh, there you go. She's got a little, um, well, she says salt. She's got a little bit of white powder by her right now. Uh, it could be talcum powder. <laughs> it could be something else. It could, okay. Well, I won't tell the gestures that uh, are being made right now, but it's, it could be salt. Um, okay. And then the third thing, which has been a real revelation for me is sleep. Now mm-hmm. I was somebody who survived on very little sleep for years while running this business and baking and and i think it has had a knock-on effect on my health and is a it's a level of stress that your body's dealing with all the time when you're when you're tired um so if you can get that right it's the it's the it's the best free medicine that mother nature gives to you and really respect it is really important my migraines for instance have kind of dropped off a, a cliff now because i was getting them fairly frequently and i think now i've got my sleep in in check 
that actually it's getting much better and they're not they're not there anymore so uh, it's a really essential one there's so much healthy things that happen and also you know i find when i'm really overtired overeat and you know there's all these other things going on so if you want to have a really good day get a good night's sleep however you can yeah and make it consistent yeah how does that happen with a with a two-year-old and a five-year-old well it's been a uh, yeah it's been a battle to get to this point uh, and occasionally my two-year-old will have a little uh, issue in the night but very rarely now the first year and a half was horrific and um but actually it wasn't that bad because i was already up baking at night anyway so i do the night feeds uh in between baking brownie trays but um but yes but it's not obviously easy to do that but i think protect as much as you can you've got to work within the environment you've got and you know prioritize it so i see myself sometimes as an infinite resource you know, there's 24 hours and I'm going to get as many of those 24 hours out of the day as I can. And sleep was always a thing that then would get put by the wayside. And I've realized that it's actually completely wrong. If that sleep's right, then the day is way more productive and better. So actually get the sleep right. It's not, it's not an either or, it's an essential. Absolutely. I always used to say I'll sleep when I'm dead, but. But you might die realize, sooner. <laughs> That's yeah, the problem. I've come to realize that I, I needed to change that paradigm. Now, yeah. sometimes I don't sleep. And the, but that's not. I'm still in bed, and I'm still doing nothing in bed. Yeah, but and I just don't sleep. Still. But that's but but that's something else. You know, that's something else going on. But it's not. I now make sure I get to bed at a reasonable time. It used you, to be one, two o'clock in the morning, like you. Do, do you ever find that? Like, do, I know you're on Clubhouse. I don't know if you both are. You're on Clubhouse too, Louise. Yeah, there's a lot of stoic stuff spoken on Clubhouse by a lot of people in business communities. I don't know if you've been to some of those those rooms, and some of the ways that I've heard people talk is almost that macho thing of you don't need much sleep and, and you should be getting up at 5am, but going to bed at like 11 or midnight or something. And I think that's not sustainable. I think it's low nonsense. And if you look at someone like, you know, Margaret Thatcher, she did actually have serious health issues in the last, I mean, who wants to live a life like hers with Alzheimer's? I think she had Alzheimer's. I'm not entirely sure, but yep. she certainly had some real problem with her brain. And, and you think, you don't want to live like that for the rest of your life, do you? You want to have a healthy life and and actually an old age, which is that's the other thing. It's not about just the longevity, it's all about the quality of life. And I think sleep's an essential part of that quality. Just because you're sleeping, you're dead, doesn't mean you've had a good 20 years before you died. Actually, you want really, you know, you want to have the best life you can to the very last day of your life. I think that's really yeah, important. Just just keel over at some point yeah well just hopefully not wake up one day oh god we've got a little bit serious here um (laughs) (laughs) but but actually this is really important because that is part of my vision because i didn't have any particular health issues i did have some health issues but that i never thought would resolve through a change in my diet but actually my long-term plan is i'm 40 years older than my kids i want to see them grow up and I want to be able to, if they then go on to have children, I want to be able to play with them, do things with them, be able to hold them. I don't want to be sitting in a home with somebody wiping my butt. I want to wipe my own butt and I want to be able to travel or do whatever I want. Be independent, until yeah. I'm, yeah, until I'm old enough. Yeah, totally agree. That's the thing. And those choices you make when you're younger, you take for granted. But actually, I think now I'm realising that what I'm doing now is about the next 40 years and, and making sure that's a good 40 years. Um, yeah. I heard a, a great quote um, a couple of years ago uh, from, from my network, and she said, we were, we were giving out quotes, and she said, we have two lives, and the second one begins when you realise you've only got one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
And I think it was, I think Daisy Brackenhall looked it up. I think she said it was from Confucius. Mm-hmm. But that is really massive. So you have to realise, you have to wake up to the fact that we've only got one life and you have to live it to the best of your ability. And you probably need to change quite a few things at that Love point. Love that. I'm just making a note of that quote because that's brilliant. I, I really think that's so true. Well, Dan, it sounds like you're living your best one life, you know, and, uh, and so in the next <laughs> in the next chapter, once you've hit this milestone, and there's so many milestones for us to look forward to in terms of, you know, your your podcast, deliciously guilt free, you know, in terms of your advocacy, and so through the community groups, and obviously that grass, you know, being an important part of this grassroots swell that's you know hopefully bringing us that education and taking us on that journey so thank you very much for your time today no thank you for having me on the show it's been great being here and talking to you both thank you so much and hopefully you'll get elected and then you can start influencing from the top down as well you never know um i've been pretty rejected squarely so far but uh one day you know never ever give up eh? just keep going um I do feel that what's interesting on that point, when I first did in 2015 and 2017, I was much more standing as the Labour candidate with all the issues that Labour stood for. And obviously I believe those things. But now I feel like this this mission has become more crystallised over the last few years, where I feel like actually, no, like Tony Benn said, there are two types of politician. You've got the weather vanes, the weathercocks, and you've got the signposts. And the weather vanes, the ones that sort of turn in the wind as, as time goes on. Then the signposts, the ones are like from the day one, they've had that mission to achieve this one thing, whatever party they're in, that's the thing they want to achieve. And I feel more and more that actually sugar and taking on sugar is the thing that I want to take on and, and achieve that in whatever way it turns out. It might not be politics at all. It, well, it might be politics with a small P, who knows, but it will be, that's the thing I want to take on. And I think that's where we need this grassroots movement It's so important. And, and that would be a life worth lived to take on sugar to make people eat a lot, lot less of it. Yeah. Hmm. All power just, to you. Just don't advocate the Esparto. Oh, no, I don't. That's a, <laughs> well, okay. I don't know when you want this to end, but <laughs> that's a whole new topic we can go into with sweeteners and what sweeteners are which. Um, but yeah, I do find that the sugar industry is very good at saying sweeteners are bad when actually sweeteners are a massive spectrum. And, and you know, some things that are considered sweeteners aren't actually technically sweeteners either, like chicory roots. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole thing there about that, isn't there? But we won't go into all that now. Maybe that's no. when, come on my Another show, day. we can talk about it on that okay. one. Yeah. We'll look forward to it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for thank having you me. Thank you so much. So Dan is another guest who is full of life, full of beans, isn't he? No wonder he's a politician. He's got great charisma. Well, aspiring politician, but he certainly is one of those political advocates and the fact that he is so committed to really having that sugar-free focus. And again, you know, he's we one of those food producers that we've had previously interviewed that we understand their commitment to wanting to clean up the the food supply for um, you know and giving us options yeah and I think Dan is slightly different to say Tecla and um, the low food low carb food company in that he's not outsourcing his manufacturing he's doing it all himself so he has much more control over what goes in and and what comes out the other end, I guess. 
Absolutely. But, uh, you know, that's part of, obviously, you know, Dan's commitment at this time. You know, he is obviously, as he said, he was cooking in his kitchen. He found the cafe. Um, then he went into the to the play, the soft play area. So, and it now has the capacity to, to do that. So the scalability of his enterprise has obviously increased as he's gone along. But the fact that he's wrapped this up in with his, his studies of, you know, anthropology and he understands the nuances of the politics of the food supply and what goes on our plate and the reasons why that. But he wants to make a change. And that's a really, again, a passionate thing that people that are committed to this way of living commit, you know, walk, not only do they talk the talk, you know, being a good politician, but he's walking the walk, which is really inspiring, you know, for change. Yeah. And it would be great if he could get elected and, and have a, an, some input higher up in the, the chain of command as, of our politics to, mm. to actually implement that. Because although we know, and he, he spoke about it, he said how all changes come from from the grassroots level, no one up the top ever says, yes, let's go and do this. So, but it would be great if we can attack it, have a dual approach, mm. two-pronged yeah. approach. And he understands the policy cycle, you know, and that's the, that's where it is, you know, it's got to be that grassroots level. And he's doing it one in his kitchen. So that's really, again, you know, he's putting, you know, doing the walk and the talk. So that's really great. Jackie, can you remind us where we can get the show notes for Dan's episode, please? So the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero four eight. Great. Hey, Jackie. You know, when you were starting out with keto, you probably had loads of questions. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Don't you wish you just had someone who was able to give you just the simple answers to all those questions about macros, electrolytes, reading nutrition labels and sweetness? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we want to have an episode where you, dear listener, can AMA which stands for Ask Me Anything. You'll be able to ask us anything using a Fabulously Keto webpage where there is a contact form and you could submit your questions, which we will answer on these episodes. The contact page is fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. Whether you're just starting out or experienced in your journey, we will happily answer your questions. You don't have to be new to keto, so if you're further along in your journey, and have questions on being stuck on a plateau or a stall, then feel free to submit your questions as well. Just head over to www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1. 
and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. Music